Very few people buy rental properties well. Again, that's the distinction between buying a property versus being an investor. Any Joe Schmo can buy a rental. There are few people who have deeply thought about rentals such that they can do it well. What's up, you beautiful beasts? It's your boy, Never Shower, aka Rav I Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Paula Pant of affordanything.com. You'll love this episode if you are interested in real estate or fake estate. Uh, also, Paula has the most soothing voice you'll ever hear. One thing that we talked about that I still think about from this episode months later is that she said this, anyone can buy a house, but not everyone can be a real estate investor. That was one of the most powerful things that I took away from this episode among a bunch of other stuff. So I own a few properties and I wanted to hear more from my good friend Paula, how she's making at least $40,000 a year passively in income from her properties, among other things. If you want to learn more about the do's and don'ts or the do's or the don'ts or the do nots of property investing, I think you'll love this episode. In this conversation, you'll learn three major things. Number one, whether it's better to Airbnb or long-term rental. One thing she talked about is being a hotel versus just being a renter, which I thought was really interesting. Number two, how to use passive income being a landlord to scale your business over 30 years. And number three, tax loopholes and other things you can do employing yourself as a W-2 in your own business. You're going to learn those three things, plunge, plunge a bunch more surprises along the way. Enjoy. Two quick plugs. First off, this month is personal finance month, so I'm highlighting a bunch of things around personal finance for you. Over the past six months, I've interviewed millionaires, trillionaires, psych, wealth managers, tax strategists, and a ton of other things that I've done for myself. And basically, I wanted to find out what are rich people doing that they're not telling us. And I put it together for myself, and I'm going to release it as a book for 100 bucks. I've already pre-sold out my first 100 copies, but if you want to get on the launch list, email richpeople at okdork.com with the subject, I want it. That's richpeople at okdork.com with the subject, I want it. Number two, go check out gotenna.com. That's G-O-T-E-N-N-A.com. They sent me one of their things for free because I saw it and I was really curious about it. It's a super cool way of having a private text network when you are in remote areas or want things to be private. It's a way that you and your other friends can just text directly, even if you don't have cell reception. So check that out, gotenna.com. A pre-show shout out is going to Bill Widmer of BillWidmer.com. He left a sweet review saying, can't recommend this podcast enough. Okay, I just wrote that. No, I'm just kidding. It was Bill. Dude, I thank you so much, Bill. And I thank every single one of you guys for listening. It means so much to me. If you want a shout out on one of my future episodes, leave a review on iTunes. I check every single one of them or send me a tweet at Noah Kagan. I want to talk about money. And I know you talk about money a lot, but maybe we can talk about some things with money that maybe you don't talk about as often. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. I've read your stuff a little bit, and then I started digging into your stuff, and I was really enjoying it. And then it all started when I sent you the book I'm working on, which is Things That Rich People Won't Tell You. And it just got me like, oh, I should interview and share stories of people who are rich. Could you be really rich in money or really rich with time? I think you publish how much you made or, or you make from all your passive income. Was it around like 50000 a year? So. The rental properties last year in 2017 grossed 125000 and netted 43000 after all expenses, including operating expenses as well as debt servicing. And that's great. But the real, I guess, qualifier for being rich is at this point, between myself and Will, our combined net worth is $2.3 million. So once we separate that out, once we divorce, then my individual personal net worth will be about 1.1 to 1.2. What is that comprised of? 
between 1.7 to 1.8 million is the value of the real estate in terms of just asset value, not including liabilities. Another 21,000 is cars. I own two, which is embarrassing. Let's see. I've got about 400,000 in brokerages and banks for a total of between 1.3 to 1.4. My own personal share of the liabilities are about 300,000. And those liabilities are all mortgages. Do you feel rich? That's a very good question. Or would you classify yourself as a rich person? I would classify myself as a rich person. Given that I am a millionaire, and by millionaire, I mean my net worth exceeds one million. That's so cool to say, by the way. <laughs> I know, right? I'm going to be a 10,000 heir. <laughs> yeah, given that even as a single person, even as a single individual, my net worth exceeds one million, I think that by any objective metric, that would make me, indisputably makes me a millionaire. And I think that by basically any standard, a millionaire would be synonymous with a rich person. So I would define myself as one, but I, I don't feel like one. You don't feel like a millionaire or you don't feel like a rich person? What has motivated me to get to the position where I am is a, quite honestly, a lot of anxiety around financial insecurity. Ever since my teens or early 20s, I have always had a somewhat irrational fear of not having enough money. And it has been that fear that has caused me to build the seven-figure net worth that I have today. And now that I have it, that fear has not dissipated. That anxiety has not dissipated. It's improved. It's certainly better than it would be if I had a net worth of 100000 but it hasn't gone away. And so I suppose I don't feel like a rich person insofar as in my head, I guess I define feeling rich as not having financial anxiety. And what I have found is that there is not a perfect correlation or inverse correlation between anxiety versus wealth. I am curious what would make you feel better. A question that someone's asked me, and I think I've asked other people, is, you know, what is your relationship with money? That's not something I think poor people ever say to each other. Like, yo, dog, I'm fucking broke. Their relationship is like, yo, I want to get money. But it is interesting, right? Because I think a lot of people, I know myself included, was that when I get a lot of money, I'm going to feel better about myself. You do feel better. It doesn't solve the problems that we still have. I think one thing that helped me a long time ago was the therapist said, well, write out everything you want because I didn't get the Facebook money. Facebook stock when I got fired. So it was like, well, if you did get it, what would you buy? And it was like a house and a car and you know, pretty normal shit. And I was like, oh, I guess I can actually get all the things I want now. And so it was uh, interesting to actually experience that. And, uh, you know, I was reading this book recently, or actually my friend Billy's post, it was that when you ask people how much money they want, they generally just say more. Mm -hmm. I think to this whole thing, it's like, you know, what would reduce your anxiety? So I've been tracking my net worth since 2011. And at that time, if you had asked me what would reduce my anxiety, I would have said a million. Now that I'm at a million, and when Will and I were together, we were at 2.2, 2.3 million combined. So I know what it feels like to identify with that net worth. When I hit that benchmark, it felt like enough would be five. And I know that I'll get to five. And I know that when I get there, enough will feel like 10. And I'm not dissuading anybody from trying to reach that because it is absolutely true 
that I feel less anxiety now than I did in 2011. I absolutely feel quite a bit more confident now than I did back when I had less and back before I had proven to myself that I could actually make this money and that I could actually do this. That's true. And it is also simultaneously true that at a certain point, nothing reduces your anxiety other than emotional work. It's interesting how the amounts are arbitrary, right? Like why not 954,000 is like level of success. And I think it's more that each of us need to spend time thinking about how much we really want and how much do we actually need to live the lifestyle that we want, right? Because it's like, I want to have a million. It's like, well, how do you live? I live really cheap. Well, do you really need to go and do all this work you're doing for that money? The second thing is how much we identify with the money as our self-worth. I know there's been times where I've gone out and someone does something and I'm like, well, at least I'm fucking rich. Yeah. Right. Like that, that's what I think in my head, which is totally like a dick thing. It's kind of a dick thing, but it's more just in general, like how much our identity is tied up into that number or to the idea of that number. I never really thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that if you compare everything that people do to a game, like money is sort of the way that we keep score, both as a society as well as an individual. And so- if somebody is rude to you, it can be easy to think like, well, at least my points are up on the board. Obviously sharing your numbers and people can see who you look like and they can see you at conferences. What do you think society would be like if everyone just shared their number more openly? Oh, I think that would be great. Yeah, I think that would be fantastic. Because there are so many assumptions that we make about what is a lot and what is not much. In 2012, Will made... He was earning a salary of 45000 And we decided in that year to live entirely on his salary and save mine. And I remember this woman left a comment on my blog once. I tend to get this type of hate from other women. They have this assumption that like the only way a woman can succeed is if it's on the back of a man. And so she left this comment on my blog. She was like, well, the only reason that Paula could invest in real estate is because her husband made enough for her to live on. And at the time, we weren't sharing our specific numbers. But if I could go back and tell that woman, like, my husband made $45,000. Is your statement that the reason that I was able to buy a rental property that year, because my husband made $45,000, that's your statement? Because we weren't sharing the numbers, I think that she was able to imagine that he was making 10x more than that. She was probably imagining that he made 400,000, not 45,000, right? And so I think that by virtue of sharing the numbers, you know, I then could say like, look, we lived on 45 because we were living five roommates in a three-bedroom home and eating vegetarian food from Costco. And I drove a 15-year-old car that was worth about $1,000. That was how we did it. And that same year, we bought a house in cash. Granted, it was a $21,000 house, but we bought it in cash. And then we spent every weekend fixing it up. And that was how we did it. And today that house is worth like 110000 Nice. It is interesting. I wonder if everyone at their next lunch or their next dinner or their next meeting was like, one of the topics was money. Because I, I know when I worked at Mint, even just talking about money is a, a sensitive thing. I will say one of the things that's strange is like at Sumo, people always share these stock tips. And I'm just like, if people are so good at stock, why do they work at a company? Like, why don't they just go be full-time investors? And I, I don't know. I'm just like, not in a mean way. Right. But it's sensitive, right? Like, and even how much stock you buy, you don't ever say. I had an experience recently where I had lunch with a, a good friend. 
he got on the topic of how he has this private life group. And I won't identify him his money or the group or anything about him. But I thought what was interesting is two pieces. One piece was that he has this group where it's an accountability life group where they talk about their money and everything. There's nothing holding back. And I thought there was something very beautiful about that honesty and having that openness with a small group of people that are, I don't know if it's just like-minded, but are at your level or above you. But the second thing was then me and him started talking about finances. We shared finances with each other. And after I did it, I didn't feel dirty, you know, like not like the walk of shame, I guess it would be called, but I felt anticlimactic. I was like, eh, that's it. I'm happy for you. I'm happy for me. And then I did it with my girlfriend, actually. After ayahuasca, I went and shared all my finances with her. And even that was anticlimactic. It kind of like demystified this thing that I think we've put so much pressure on ourselves and so much self-worth on. I don't know. It's a man-made thing that we, we have created to put so much pressure about. It was just kind of wild in those experiences. Well, I mean, in the personal finance community, which I'm involved in, like the personal finance blogging and podcasting community, we tend to share a lot of numbers. A lot of people do. I guess I've become normalized to a, a niche community in which sharing numbers openly is more commonly done. One major way that I've benefited from that is that I realized that what I thought was a lot of money was actually far more normal than I had realized. And in that regard, I guess I realized within my business that I was undervaluing myself or that I was setting my goals too low, setting my benchmarks too low. And I think that can come from, we were an immigrant family. My parents immigrated to the US. Uh, I was born in Kathmandu and I came to the US as a baby. And I think I, those early childhood experiences, you talked earlier about lifestyle. I've always lived a very frugal lifestyle. I've always been comfortable with that. I've always been happy with that. And I just shared how we were living, even as recently as 2012, living five people in a three-bedroom unit, driving a 15-year-old car. Like I've, In terms of lifestyle, I've never really needed much. And frugality is often praised in money-related conversations, but one of the drawbacks of frugality is that in some ways, when it comes to earning, your thinking becomes smaller. When your benchmark is based around your lifestyle. If you need $3,000 a month to live, 36,000 a year, and you earn 70,000, you think that that's a massive amount of money because it's double what you need. But then when other people who are doing the same type of work that you are doing start sharing their numbers and they're earning 150,000, 200,000, 250,000, that's when you realize that you've been setting your sights too low. To you yourself, it felt like a lot because 70000 is twice as much as what you actually need, not including taxes. But even though it feels like a lot to you because your lifestyle is quite cheap, it can kind of blind you to the possibility that you could be scaling bigger, you could be making more. The fact that I know that there are people who run companies, like people who run educational companies that include a website and a podcast and a bunch of other media outlets. The fact that I know that there are people who do that who bring in 400000 a year, and I know that's not just an anomaly. I know many, many people who bring in that much or more. The fact that I know that that exists and they do that is the reason that I can then set my sights on that number. If I hadn't known that, if they'd never disclosed their figures, 
I probably would have thought, yeah, 100000 that's a good gross revenue. And then I would have just left it there. It reminds me of the the four mile story. I'm sure you've heard it where like the guy who did the first broke the mile at four minutes, like once he did it, then everyone did it. But no one did it really before him until he did it. I think part of the the challenge with that is that, wow, I didn't know this even existed or this was possible. But then also balancing that with what do you really want versus like, well, they made a million, so I have to make a million. I know maybe about five years ago, a friend of mine was probably doing somewhere around five million a year in take home. And I just remember feeling so competitive and jealous. I really had to step back and think, one, I didn't really like the way he was doing it personally. And I also had to wonder, you know, how do I want to live my life? How much do I want to be making? And so I think there is that balance between those two worlds of what's possible, but also what is it for yourself? What got you wanting to share this stuff? I think there is definitely healthiness about sharing it among friends and, and maybe everywhere. What initiated that for you? It was a slow process. So initially, I started just by sharing the numbers on my rental properties rather than sharing my total numbers. And part of that is that you can Zillow a home. So I knew that at least friends and family could, if they knew the address of the home, I knew that my friends and family would very quickly be able to look up what I had paid for a given rental property. And so it felt not too scary to me to be able to share, here's what I paid for this property. Here's what it rents for, given that that stuff is pretty findable anyway. Once I got into the habit of doing that, then the next step was to share with my audience goals that I had as expressed as percentages. So like I mentioned in 2012, that was the first year that we decided to live on half of our income and save and invest the other half. But then once I started talking about percentages, as I mentioned, that led to these big assumptions like, oh, you can only save half if you make a whole bunch of money. And so largely, then I started disclosing figures in order to, to show people that I actually wasn't making as much as they thought I was, especially back in those early days. I think the next number that I disclosed was my salary from the only three years that I've ever worked for somebody else. So I graduated from college in 2005 and I took a starting salary of $21,000 in 2005 and I quit that job in 2008. And at the time that I quit, my salary was 31000 And that's the highest amount of money that I've ever earned working for somebody else. But then after I quit that job and I began working for myself, for the first few months of self-employment, I was making maybe two to $3,000 per month. And then around the 18-month mark-ish, approximately, that was the first time that I had my first five-figure month, meaning I made more than 10000 in that given month. And so, yeah, so that was how I started sharing my numbers. It was gradual, and it was really to add more context to my story and to break the assumptions that people were making, to show people that I was a liberal arts major from a state university. So I wasn't making the salary of an engineer or a programmer or an accountant. And the way that rather than resigning myself to this idea that like, oh, poor me, I have a liberal arts undergrad from a state college, I'm never going to make anything ever. I found through entrepreneurship that I could make significantly more than I could working for somebody else. But even then, it was a very slow process. It took me years to figure out the distinction between being self-employed versus being an entrepreneur. That took me years to learn. So yeah, I guess I share the numbers in order to give that story more context. One thing I'm wondering with rich people, and I always think the Chris Rock joke, uh, do you know the difference between rich and wealthy? 
Oh, yes. Uh, Shaq is rich. The guy who writes his checks is wealthy. <laughs> exactly. Well, one thing I, I that's good. That was good. Uh, one thing I wonder for rich people is that what do they do all day? Right? Like, are you bored? Because like, you've, you know, you have these properties, you have some investments. It doesn't sound like you have to work. And so I'm always I am curious, how do you spend your day? It's funny you ask this now because I've this week I've been, you know, there's a website called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L, where you can track your time. So this week I've been toggling my time and I work about eight hours a day of actual toggled time. But that, you know, when you include breaks in there, like it's, it's, I'm not going to spend eight solid hours at a laptop. I'm going to get up to go to the bathroom or to make some food. So eight hours of actual work is about 10 hours at a laptop or in my podcast booth or, you know, 10 hours of being in work mode. I've been going to the gym every day so far this week, which is unusual for me. I'm not normally a daily gym person, but I'm, I've been much better at it lately. Between that and normal stuff of life, you know, just normal getting the mail and taking care of my pets and plants, uh, cleaning out the turtle tank, like, you know, just normal life stuff, connecting with friends on the phone. I mean, that basically takes up an entire day, like an entire life. My friend Tynan said this to me, he said it, well, it's like, you know, a lot of people will do X so that they can really do Y. Like, I got to do this job so I can really do the thing I really love. And either whether you have the money or you don't have the money, for myself included, it's like, how do we go and just do the why? Which is like, what are the things we really want to be doing all day long? So I think it's great that it sounds like that is what you do. Yeah. You know, my motivation to build investments was that I never wanted to work for somebody else. As I mentioned, I had a lot of insecurity around that. I had a lot of anxiety around that. I knew that self-employment would be very volatile. Remember, this is before I had learned the distinction between self-employment and entrepreneurship. So I knew that self-employment would be volatile and there would be periods of feast and periods of famine. And I never wanted that volatility to create a temporary cash flow crunch that would require me to give up on self-employment and go back into the W-2 nine-to-five workforce. It's not that I didn't want to work. I love working. In fact, I'm often happiest when I'm working. It was specifically that I did not want to work for someone else. I wanted to always have autonomy to choose my own projects and make my own decisions and be the master of my own work. It's funny because in the financial independence movement, the notion is to you know build passive income so that you can retire early. And ironically, I didn't build passive income so that I could retire. I built passive income so that I could work but so that I could work on my own terms. What are you doing now that you're more rich than you were doing, let's say, 10 years ago? You know, a lot of the book that I put together is just things that rich people do that regular people don't know about, like different tax structures, different investment opportunities, different activities, hiring assistants. I think a lot of things that people are like, ah, that's a waste of money. I'm curious what things uh, you think that rich people are doing or you're doing that maybe poor people don't know about or that you didn't do 10 years ago. So definitely hiring an assistant. And assistant is really not the right word for her. I hired her initially as an assistant, but she has over the years grown to be, uh, I call her my chief sanity officer. And even in emails, I'm like, this is my CSO. And I've noticed that nobody questions what that stands for. But truly, she is, she is my operations manager. She's my business manager. Like 
she is the person who keeps everything running. And I've definitely gone through periods where, especially in the past couple of years, I've gone through some moments of some deep depression where I have just not been able to show up for my company in the way that I should have. And without us even having to have an explicit conversation about it, she recognized that and stepped in and kept the trains going and kept everything alive. So yeah, hiring her was probably the single best decision I have ever made as an entrepreneur. Where'd you find her? Through the personal finance network. People who write about finance are a fairly tight-knit community. So she just came recommended. And at the time that I found her, she was an assistant to about a dozen or so personal finance blogs. Myself and this one other guy, the two of us jointly hired her full-time, and that was several years ago, and it kind of stair-stepped up from there. Recently, I hired a developer. I actually hired two, and one of them was fine. He did his job and nothing else. The second one that I hired was amazing. In the, like, I never really understood what a developer did. I figured they wrote some code and that was it. But this guy has just had so many ideas for, like good ideas for improvements that we can make. He's beyond being a developer. He's really proven himself to be a wise visionary who can execute on that vision. And so right now I'm just hiring him on a per project basis, but he's going to be the next big asset to the team. I think hiring wisely, um, hiring not people who are cheap, but people who are world-class, that's the single most important thing that I've done within my business. And that's certainly something I'm doing now that I wasn't doing 10 years ago. So really one of the benefits of, I wouldn't say being rich, but of running a company that has enough gross revenue that you can then have some flexibility in how you reinvest that gross. The biggest benefit to it is being able to hire really good people. What, what else? I have restructured my company. And again, to be clear, I'm not talking about my real estate investments now. I'm talking about my day-to-day my -day company. I've restructured that such that it is taxed as an S-corp. And I am, ironically now, a W-2 employee of my own S-Corp. So uh, I was joking about this where I built a business around not being a W-2 employee. And that business has done so well that I am now a W-2 employee of my own business that promotes not being a W-2 employee. So yeah, restructuring such that I am now a W-2 employee of my own S-Corp. Uh, and what that's done, in addition to various uh, tax benefits, the biggest thing that that's done for my mental space is that I now more clearly understand the distinction between myself as an individual and my company. And so there are a lot of bloggers who will say, I made 500,000 last year, or I made 1 million last year. But really, first of all, that's gross, not net. Second of all, you didn't make that, your company did. And I understand why they would write an article that frames it in that way. Like, I made 1 million last year is a really good headline. But as I understand it, my company grossed a given amount last year and my company netted a given amount. And from that, I paid myself a salary that is significantly less than 
what my company both grossed and netted, right? And the the leftover amount that remains in my business bank account from what the company netted is just money that really belongs to the company that I have not decided how to reinvest yet. But I'm going to choose to pay myself a much smaller salary so that I can have the space to think about how I want to reinvest the net profits of the company. So I think that's the biggest benefit of being a W-2 of your own company is that you create that mental separation between the profits that your company makes versus what you yourself have. There's so many different structures and things that as you get to higher levels of wealth that become available to you, like being an accredited investor, once you make over a certain salary or a certain net worth, there's just different things that you can do in terms of investments that are available. As we get wealthier, as you do more things, you, there's actually a lot more opportunity. So if you create, like, let's say, you know, Paula Pants Management Company, and you manage your real estate holdings, you manage the personal finance education company, you advise other people, you can actually now have multiple companies that you can do multiple retirement fund accounts in. You reduce some of your, I don't think it's Medicare tax, mm-hmm. but you reduce some of your tax obligations because now you're not necessarily a full-time employee or a contractor to those businesses. So you don't have to pay certain uh, payroll taxes. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm trying to actually research. So there's yeah. just like so much crazy shit out there. Well, with rental properties, it's a little bit different because the IRS views rental properties as passive income. So you actually can, with rental properties, you can't use income from rental properties as earned income for contributions into a retirement account. In order to be able to do that, you have to work a certain number of hours for those rental properties, which we don't even come close to qualifying for. So the tax structure of rental income from an IRS perspective is passive income and subject to the rules of passive income. So it's a completely different ballgame. Is there any other kind of things that you're doing like that? I used to have a kind of branch. I held it under the same company structure, but I used to have a branch of my company that was called Catalyst Digital Marketing, where we provided services to other companies. And they were mostly startups in the fintech space, like financial technology startups, because there are dozens of new financial startups in California that begin all the time. And all of them need to very rapidly grow their content marketing, their social media marketing. And that's not their area of expertise. Like they've got a million other things to do. And so for a while, what I did was I I basically leveraged the success that I had with my own company and said, hey, I've grown a following. I've grown an audience of this size. I have right now I've got 54,000 email subscribers. Basically, I just kind of said, hey, we can provide full service content marketing for you. So just hand it off to us and we will do it. And so for many years, I was doing that. And then I actually, two years ago, intentionally decided to just cut all of those services and completely kill off the consulting. And it was partially from that, the you know, there's this framework of you can either be a product company or a service company, but you can't do both well. So I thought about that and products were significantly more scalable. And I decided that I wanted to focus there. And yes, I absolutely agree. I, I know the objection to this is, but if you were better at it, you could do both well. Or, but if you were better at it, you could hire more people. But if you were better at it, you could have at least sold that portion of your company rather than just killing it. Yes, all of those statements are true. And at a certain day, you just have to 
take the essentialist route, focus on what you're good at and leave the rest. Like at, at a certain point, you just have to let go of good so that you can pursue great. And so I decided to kill off all of the services that we were providing, which was scary at the time, right? I was killing off six figures in gross revenue, but I knew that with products, I could go to seven figures. And that was not something that I thought that I could reasonably do as a service provider. What do you think you're great at? I'm great at having vision and I'm good enough at getting to the point where I can bring in good operations people. There are a lot of people who have vision, but they can't execute at all. They can't execute to the point where they bring in a team that can compensate for their weaknesses. Vice versa, like there are plenty of people who are really good at the mechanics of operations and management, but they just, they don't have vision. They don't have inspiration. They're really good at building, but there's nothing that they're building towards. There's nothing that they have envisioned creating. I think that I'm good at at having that vision and then surviving to the point where we can bring in people who can take care of a lot of the details. I guess I'm probably decent at managing as well. (laughs) I think sometimes we're probably our harshest critics. You know, internally, I see all of the balls that I drop. The outside world sees the successes that I carry through with. But inside of my head, I'm hyper aware of all the balls that I've dropped. I'm hyper aware of all of the gap between my current self and my ideal self, or the gap between where I am and where I could be. So the outside world sees where I am, and some people are impressed by that or look up to that. I guess I have this like constant sense of inadequacy because I always see the gap between where I am and where I could be. One thing I think for, you know, for people listening, they're probably like, how the hell did she do it? And I know they can go to your site if you want to give a quick plug for that. Sure. Yeah. My website is affordanything.com and I have a podcast called Afford Anything. And one thing for anybody who goes to visit either site is uh, there's a distinction between my rental property investments and the business that I run day to day, which is Afford Anything. Rental properties, for some reason, are what I have become known for, even though that's actually a very, very small piece of what I do. I've kind of grappled for years to figure out why it is that people remember me for that, even when I very directly and very bluntly state, like, you guys, this is actually a really small piece of my overall portfolio, and it's a very negligible piece of my time. But I think that people and organizations, and even cities, are known not for their most predominant trait, but for their most unique ones. Owning rental properties, owning eight homes by the age of 31, that's unique, and it's a headline. And as a result, people remember me for that. It's actually really tiny. Most of my brain space goes towards developing and scaling a company that teaches people about how to be better with their money. And that company has a website and it has a blog and it has a podcast and it has social media accounts and it has a course. That's what I spend eight toggled hours a day doing. Why not double down on the rental property or double down on the afford anything like what you did with your consulting business? Why not double down on one or the other? Yeah. The properties really run themselves at this point. I spend close to zero time. We we actually tracked it and between... Will and I combined, we spent on average one hour a week. So with that little time input, 
the path of least resistance is to leave good enough alone. That's one reason. The other reason is, again, there's a distinction between afford anything the company and Paula Pant the individual. Paula the individual earns a salary from her company. Of this salary that she earns, some of that goes into a a Roth solo 401k, some of that goes into a backdoor Roth IRA, some of it goes into a health savings account, and then some of it goes into buying the next rental property. And that way, Paula, the individual, will still have investments and will still be okay, regardless of the fate of afford anything the company. I guess one thought for me is like, why not try to go in like double or triple amount of real estate investments? Noah, something that you said, you made the observation that software is the future of content, and I completely agree. Products, digital products, including courses and software, are much more scalable than, than real estate. I think real estate is a really wonderful way to build passive income. But if you want seven-figure revenue, you're not going to get that with real estate unless you leverage hard. And I don't want to leverage hard. I'm very conservative when it comes to debt, very conservative when it comes to leverage. So a content-based business with software being the future of content, that's how to scale. Funny, that sounds smart. I'll take credit for it. Um, <laughs> you know, for people that haven't read the blog and, and giving them a taste of it, like if I'm listening and I'm maybe 24, just out of college, and I, you know, I, I do like the idea of real estate. I think my parents told me it was good. What would be your approach today? Like maybe I have, you know, 25,000 in savings. Like what, what exactly would you do to, to go find a, a profitable rental property? So my philosophy is to buy a rental property based on the income stream rather than any speculation of, about future appreciation. And what I mean by that is the following. An asset, any asset, gains value in two ways. One is capital appreciation, and the other is the dividend or the income stream that it pays. In the stock world, for example, you buy a share of Coca-Cola, that share of Coca-Cola rises in value, that's called capital appreciation, and that share of Coca-Cola pays a dividend, that's its income stream. Now, when it comes to rental properties, the philosophy that I teach is to buy a rental property based purely on its income stream alone and not based on your anticipation of its future value. My saying for that is appreciation of speculation. And so what I teach people is to assume that the property will keep pace with inflation, but nothing more, which means historic appreciation has been 3%. So you assume that it will rise, it'll appreciate 3%, and that's all. If it does better, that's excellent. That's icing on the cake, but don't count on it. With that in mind, what you are looking for essentially is a property with a metric that's known as the cap rate. Cap rate is a measure of the unleveraged income stream of a property. You're looking for a property with a cap rate of at least 6%. Because if it has a dividend, an unleveraged income stream of 6%, and it also appreciates at the rate of inflation, which is 3%, that means your total unleveraged returns would be 9%. So you start with that as the goal for the rental property that you're looking for. And then the question becomes, okay, where can I find properties that have a cap rate of around 6%? So to be clear, just to to dumb it for for people listening, cap rate is basically like, I put in $10,000, I make back $600. So I'm getting a 6% return on the investment? Yeah, I would say that's a simplified way of, of looking at cap rate. The way that it's calculated is 
let's say that you have a property that rents for $12,000 a month, which means that it rents for $14,400 a year. That's what's called its potential gross rent, which is like, potentially, this is what it could earn at 100% occupancy. But of course, you're never going to have 100% occupancy. So then you assume 5% vacancy. So you subtract $720 a year for that vacancy. And then you add in any other additional income like pet fees, parking fees, coin-operated laundry. If you have a storage unit or a tool shed on site and you charge tenants for storage. So you add in any other income. And then what you're left with is once you subtract for vacancies, that gives you your effective gross rent. And then you add in for other income. What you're left with is then a number that's referred to as gross operating income. And so you take that gross operating income and you subtract out all of your operating expenses. And that includes, that doesn't include the principal and interest portion of the mortgage, but it includes property taxes, homeowners insurance, as well as other operating costs like repairs, maintenance, property management, major capital expenditures. And what you're left with at the end of all of that is a figure that's called your net operating income. And your net operating income divided by the purchase price of the property is your cap rate. And so conceptually, what that is, that is the income stream, that dividend that your property pays. And so a lot of people like to conflate cash flow with cap rate. Your cash flow is like that raw dollar amount that you're getting. Yeah, you are kind of interested in that. But what's more important is this percentage, because when you frame it as a percentage, then you're seeing what that income stream is relative to the value of the asset. And that's how you can compare between two different houses that cost two very different amounts, right? It's how you can make an apples to apples comparison between properties that might have a widely different price point. How would you start looking for a place? I would choose a particular location, a particular part of the country that you want to invest in. In terms of high cost of living areas, you're most likely not going to find, unless you're very, very skilled, or you do a lot of boots on the ground work, you're most likely not going to find good rental properties in those high cost of living areas. So you start by looking at areas of the country that have a good price to a very landlord favorable price to rent ratio, such as a lot of areas in the Midwest or in the South. And pick one area. It doesn't really matter where, but you know, you could pick, for example, Birmingham, Alabama, or Cincinnati, Ohio, or, you know, Indianapolis, Indiana. You could, you could pick an area. So much of investing is your own risk comfort level, like your risk tolerance. Decide what type of risk tolerance you want with regard to neighborhoods. Neighborhoods are broadly classified as class A, B, or C, or D, depending on the relative risk reward spectrum. So class A properties are going to have the lowest amount of risk with regard to, you'll have the you know, well-qualified tenants, newer homes, lower crime neighborhoods, safer neighborhoods. You know, so they, class A neighborhoods have the lowest amount of risk, but they also correspondingly tend to have lower rewards, lower cap rates. Class C neighborhoods tend to have higher risk profiles, but also higher cap rates, higher rewards. So once you've identified a city, then ask yourself, based on your own personal risk tolerance, what type of neighborhood you're looking for. And once you've identified that, let's say that you decide that you want a class B neighborhood, right? Then start narrowing down to specific areas within that city 
that are class B neighborhoods. And then once you've narrowed down to, you know, now you know that you're looking at Cincinnati, Ohio, and you want specifically class B neighborhoods within Cincinnati, Ohio. All right, now you've got some geographic constraints. And within those geographic constraints, you can start looking at properties. And based on the price of those properties and what comparable properties are renting for, you can then start to look at where you're finding properties that have strong cap rates. A really quick and dirty back of the envelope calculation that you can do is something that's called the 1% rule, which is just a very hasty elimination process in which you ask yourself, does the property collect gross monthly rent of 1% of its purchase price? So in other words, for every $100,000 of home, does this property rent for at least $1,000 per month? If it does, it's worth further consideration. If it doesn't, it's most likely going to have a weak cap rate, so move on. It sounds so simple, and I just can't believe it's that simple. What's like a, the big errors that, that people are making where it's not profitable? So first, there's a distinction between simple and easy. By virtue of emphasizing cap rate, a lot of what I've just done is I've narrowed the metrics that we choose to look at to the one that, in my philosophy, is the most important. I guess what I was curious, like, what mistakes do people do? Because it sounds like, all right, go to a low-income area, buy a place that, you know, you can probably get a percent. I mean, I don't even know how you find the rental rate. Like, it sounds so easy, and I've, I've read the books about it, but, you know, what are the ways that we can make it easier? What are the common mistakes people are doing? One huge mistake is underestimating vacancies, repairs, maintenance, and capital expenditures. So when you're running a spreadsheet on it, when you're running an analysis, don't underestimate those numbers. As a simple rule, you can estimate 1% of the property value for repairs and maintenance, an additional 1% for capital expenditures, and maybe 5 to 10% for vacancies. But that's a very, very one-size-fits-all, oversimplified rule. When you actually go into the due diligence period of looking at a property, you'll want to look at the lifespan of every major component on the home how new is the roof? How new are the windows? How new is the siding or the exterior? And how much lifespan remains on that? You know, that's going to give you a much more clear understanding of not only what the capital expenditures, which is known as CapEx, not only what the CapEx on that property is going to cost, but also how much are you going to have to pay in terms of cash outlays in the next five years, depending on the remaining lifespan of your HVAC system and your water heater. So that's one big area where people screw it up. Another area where people screw it up a lot is conflating cash outlay with returns. So I'll hear from a lot of investors in which they say, oh, I had to make this major cash outlay on a roof, therefore my returns are zero. And that's not actually the case. Cash outlay versus returns are completely different concepts. And so at a conceptual level, like not understanding how to evaluate how well your properties are doing is another huge mistake. If you live locally, and you choose to do the property management yourself, or you choose to do some of the work yourself, running a spreadsheet in which you value your own time at zero, and you say, well, the property management is going to cost nothing because I'm going to do it myself, that's BS accounting. You can't value somebody else's time at X, value your own time at zero, and refer to that as an apples to apples comparison. So when you run the numbers, like in order for math to be math, it must be identity agnostic. So always run the numbers as though you are outsourcing everything. 
such that you can have a distinction between owner you versus worker you, if you choose to do any of the work yourself, which you absolutely don't have to. You want to buy a property such that every single piece of the work can be outsourced. So those are some of the major errors. I mean, is there a specific region that you would go do if you wanted to go do real estate again? Both the Midwest and the South. So um, Alabama has really excellent properties. Birmingham, Montgomery, Huntsville. Both Montgomery and Huntsville are a little dependent. Montgomery is very dependent on the, the military base there, and Huntsville is very dependent on government jobs. But they both have great price-to-rent ratios. Birmingham has a more diverse economy, so that's the next area that I'm looking at. Ohio, Indiana, Missouri, Kentucky, all of those areas have fantastic deals. So that's, that's the first place that I personally would look. Are you still doing the real estate? I thought it sounded like you were pulling back on that a bit. Oh, so I, uh, next year, my plan is to buy in Birmingham. Um, that's my next target. Do you set targets about like trying to buy one a year or how do you, do you do that? I was averaging one a year for the first five years. And then after I moved to Las Vegas, that was my next one, my, my personal residence. So I bought seven rentals before I bought a personal residence for myself. So I moved to Vegas, then I bought a personal residence. And then after that, for the next couple of years, I had some simultaneously a few personal issues, divorce, which kind of occupied a lot of my brain space and pulled me off of the game. And that was really when Afford Anything was transitioning from my self-employed project to a legitimate actual company. So for the past couple of years, I haven't bought anything. But now that I've got my personal issues settled a little bit more than it was, or at least my emotional life has settled a bit more than it was, and the company is solidly a company now, you know, now I'm ready to start buying rentals again. Have you thought about doing more of like these real estate platforms? Because if you're focused on the cap rate and just getting a return doing those instead of owning and managing them? Oh, like crowdfunding sites? Yeah, like I use peerstreet.com. I've had pretty good experience with them. A few have foreclosed, but they fought and actually got the money. And so I was curious if you've considered doing that and then you could focus on your, your education company and let someone else focus on the real estate. So with regard to those crowdfunding websites, the feature is also the bug. So the feature is that it doesn't require any of your time to make decisions within it. When they're renovating a property and they're deciding, do I want to renovate this such that it is a class A property in a class B neighborhood, right? Like that decision is out of your hands. Or when they're deciding whether the property managers that they're using are good enough. And if they like their performance or if they would rather fire them and use a better property manager, that decision is out of your hands. And so that's the feature. The feature is that you don't have to make those decisions. That's also the bug in that you do not get to bring your judgment, your vision to the board, right? You don't get to execute the judgment that improves the ongoing compounding returns of that property. You know, the strength of those platforms is also their weakness. You asked me earlier, what am I great at? I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I think I'm great at judgment, especially in the, in the world of business, maybe not in all aspects of my life, but I think particularly in the world of business and investments, I think that I'm good at exercising judgment. And that is the piece of it that I don't want to give away. And that is what you do give away when you go onto a crowdfunding platform. I mean, but at the same time, like, they get you the same returns. Like I'm getting a 10% return on Pure Street and I don't have to deal with any of it. 
And so I'm like, well, why not just get the 10% that you're getting? Which sounds like, isn't that what you're doing about? That's the minimum. Some of my properties, many of my properties are doing significantly better than that. Well, I guess the other part is like, you, you said you're not managing them, but who manages it then? Your CSO? Oh, no, no, no. So Afford Anything and the rental properties are completely different businesses. Do you have a property manager that manages everything? Yeah, yeah. On most of the properties, not on all of them. Oh, interesting. How do you decide if you have someone on all versus one? Oh, so the, the triplex is the property that I used to personally live in. And so I know a lot of the tenants who live there because I lived in that same building. So for that, I don't have a property manager because I know them. They're my friends. They're my former neighbors. Otherwise, I have a property manager who is absolutely amazing. Her name is Michelle. And if you have rental properties in Atlanta and you need a property manager, I would recommend her to anybody. She's amazing. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Is there anybody you discourage from doing rental properties? I would say the same thing for really any type of entrepreneurship, for running a business. You know, if you don't want it, you're not going to do well in it. So wanting it is really the foundation of all of this. I would also say if you have a lot of credit card debt or any other high interest debt, pay that off first. You know, get yourself to financial solvency before you then go into the world of investing. Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I thought that was great when you were talking. I was like, oh yeah, people should buy a house. What should they do? You're like, whoa, 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 before they go and buy a house, let's make sure they have certain things. Exactly. Make sure that you're financially solvent. Make sure you have a personal emergency fund. Make sure that you don't have credit card debt specifically. If you've got a mortgage on your personal residence, that's fine. I do too. If you have a very low interest student loan with you know a 4% interest rate, uh, that's basically the rate of inflation. I'm not worried about it. But if you're paying 15% on a credit card, that's an emergency. Deal with that first. Where do you find your tenants? Is it mostly Craigslist? No. So at this point, the property manager does most of the advertising, but there are a couple of aggregator websites where you post a listing to just that one website, and then it disseminates that listing to a whole bunch of other websites. So you can post a listing in one place And it will disseminate that to Zillow, Redfin, Trulia, basically anywhere that has, I guess, connected with the API or whatever it is that they do. I'll throw in my link, cozy.co slash Paula. It's totally free. And if you post to them, they'll distribute that listing far and wide. How come you do the Midwestern long-term rentals? Have you thought of experimenting in the short-term rentals? So that's an interesting question. Long-term and short-term rentals are completely different industries. Think of short-term rentals as the hospitality industry, whereas long-term rentals are the real estate industry. And what I mean by that is that short-term rentals are more comparable to running a hotel than to being the landlord on a property. With a short-term rental, you are responsible for providing towels, soap, shampoo, toilet paper, all of those consumables, right? Those are the same responsibilities that a hotel has. It's a different type of industry, right? So to compare the two is, it's tempting to compare the two because people look at the surface level that they are both spaces that people occupy. And as a result, it's tempting to conflate the two, but they're, the models are just so widely, like wildly different. In the short-term rental world or in the hotel world, number one, you need a cleaning service that goes in there as often as every two days or every three days. And that cleaning service needs to not just clean, but also replenish the dishwashing soap and the sponges and all of those other consumables. You need to make sure that the Wi-Fi is good. 
when the guest contacts you and says, do you have an iron and an ironing board? You know, like those are the types of questions that you get as a hotel owner, which is essentially what you are when you're doing short-term rentals, that a landlord would never get. Nobody's ever going to call their landlord because they're out of toilet paper or because they need more paper towels. That was actually a really fascinating analogy because I have one Airbnb and I I do have uh, two long-term rentals. Yeah, one of them I never deal with. The other one, it's like, hey, the fucking coffee table, something, something. I'm like, I don't care. Just get another coffee table. Or like, like they don't like the coffee beans. I'm like, what? and you know, I actually, I love hosting uh, and I love showing people the cities that, that I live in and that I know well, but there are definitely trade-offs and the different types of management of those places. Right, absolutely. I Airbnb'd one of my units for a year. So first of all, with short-term rentals, there are higher expenses, right? You have to pay utilities. You have to pay for all the consumables. You have to pay for a cleaning service to go in more often when you're out of town. You know, you have to pay for some type of boots on the ground management who will go there with a toilet plunger, right? When the toilet gets clogged, that's something that you would never have to do as a landlord. And you also have to pay sales and occupancy tax to your local city. So even after accounting for all of those expenses, um, and there's higher vacancy rates, lower occupancy rates, right? Even after accounting for all of those, I found that running a short-term rental, in my particular case, that short-term rental was more profitable than that same unit if it were rented at a long-term to a long-term tenant by a margin of $600 a month. And for all of the additional stress and mental bandwidth and energy that it required, it was more efficient to just rent it out on a long-term basis and not have to worry about like oh, we've got a new guest checking in and the normal cleaning person is sick today. So who are we going to replace her with? Like, you don't have to worry about vacuuming. As a long-term landlord, you don't have to vacuum your tenant's carpet. That's so funny. I got a call about the thermostat had a low battery. Yeah. I have a property manager, but it, you know she was out. It's Friday night. And I'm like, I make good money working at Sumo and, and now over probably $45 profit I'm spending my Friday night finding a repairman. And then, a, you know, the next day was actually a plumber to go deal with some of these issues. So, yeah, that's a, it's, I like the trade off because, yeah, you definitely could make more, I think, with short term, but there are trade offs to that cost. When you talk about going into short term rentals, essentially the question that you want to, that you're asking yourself is do I want to start a side business as a hotel owner or as a motel owner? Or do I want to be an investor in the real estate industry? I think that's something I'm still not clear about. So let's say I go to Birmingham tomorrow. How did you estimate the rent properties? The easiest way to do it is to search from the perspective of a tenant who wants to rent in that neighborhood. Let's say that you're in a particular neighborhood, we'll say the Avondale neighborhood of Birmingham, Alabama, or the East Lake neighborhood of Birmingham, Alabama. Imagine that you're a tenant that wants to rent a two-bedroom single family home in that neighborhood and then go online and see what you can find. And just by doing that search from the perspective of a tenant, you'll see the price and condition of what's on the market and you'll know where the subject property that you're looking at stacks up against it. How many do you have to look at before you buy one? Because it sounds so easy. I'm like, all right, just go look at places, find a dump, (laughs) (laughs) you know, put in some work and then have someone buy it. Have someone rent it, excuse me. It's simple, but not easy. There's a a distinction between the two. But it is simple if you buy the right property. And the challenge 
in being successful at owning rental properties is to buy the right property. One thing that I tell my students in my course all the time is that there's a big difference between owning rental properties and being a rental property investor. Anybody who qualifies for a mortgage can own a rental property, but that's not the same thing as being a rental investor. And if you haven't walked through the property or hired somebody like a contractor to walk through the property on your behalf and looked at every major component and the lifespan of every major component and based on that filled out a spreadsheet in which you calculate the projected capex on a property and then you plug that capex into yet another spreadsheet where you're analyzing the projected cap rate on the property in worst middle and best case scenarios like if you haven't rigorously analyzed that property you might own a rental but that doesn't make you an investor oh damn you're throwing bombs out today <laughs> That's a really good point. Anyone can buy a house but or a property, but no one it, it separates who's an investor. So how many are you looking at before you buy one? When it comes to a cursory look online, hundreds. When it comes to a more in-depth look that precedes putting in an offer, maybe 25-ish. Oh, wow. You put in 25 offers before you get one? No, I would say I look at about 25 that I would seriously consider putting an offer on. Of those, I'll put an offer on maybe 10. And of those, maybe three of those offers might get accepted and we'd go under contract, of which I would close on one. Wow. What is it, like a one to a thousand or one to a hundred? Something. Yeah, it takes me a long time to buy a property. And that's why my strategy is buy one a year, buy and hold. I don't operate on volume and I don't run a business with a lot of leverage. And that's why my real estate business is not, in the way that I run it, it's not something that I'm going to be able to scale into seven figures of revenue. So going back to your earlier question, that's why this is something that I do, Paula Pant, the individual, does with the money that I make from this other company that I run. Well, I want to interject because one, you know, I mean, the afford anything is your active money generator and your passive generator is your real estate. Someone said that to me. I thought that was a good way of putting it. Yeah. But I think what I don't understand is that the amount of time that you're putting into the real estate, why not put that time into afford anything and then put the money into index funds or into the Peer Street thing where you're get a, a good return, but you're, you'll even be more further ahead with the afford anything. Because if you actually look at the math, and, and this is what I did about three years ago in Austin, I was running around trying to buy properties. And I spent probably six months, I think I bought zero actually. And you know, at Sumo, I'm, I'm running the numbers. I'm like, all right, at Sumo, this year, let's say I make a few hundred thousand dollars. And I looked at my hourly for you know how much I have to work. And then I was like, all right, this property, after all this work, how much can I make a year? And it was like $10,000 a year after everything's said and done for one property. And I was like, that's how much we make it a day at Sumo. And I was like, okay, this is maybe not the best use of my time. And not to say that it's not for everyone, but I'm thinking for you, like the month of time you spend on a property or two weeks, I don't know how long it takes you, I'm estimating. Wouldn't that technically be better in Afford Anything in, in terms of a return on time and a return on money? I don't think that the two are comparable in that with buying a rental property, I'm front loading the workload in order to create a stream of passive income. Let's say that the next property that I buy Let's say next year I buy a property in Birmingham, Alabama. And from start to finish, 
buying the property, including looking at a bunch of properties, making offers, running an analysis. Let's say that from start to finish, it takes me 50 hours to buy that property. And then I hold that property for the next 30 years, and that property produces a stream of passive income that is 5000 a year adjusted for inflation for the next 30 years, right? So we're talking, what, $150,000 adjusted for inflation from that 50 hours of work. So that's what I'm doing when I'm buying a rental property. I'm not looking at how much money it's going to make me this year, because if anybody looked at just this year's returns, no rental would ever be worth it. Buying a rental, you front load the workload so that 30 years from now, you're still receiving passive income from that investment that you made. And to an extent, you know, afford anything or sumo. Yeah, by virtue of building a company, sure, there's also some passive money that you could derive from that. But as you and I both know, running our companies is an extremely demanding full-time job. And I agree that our companies are much more scalable. They will produce higher revenue. They will produce stronger returns. Like it's selling products, especially digital products, that allow you to add zeros onto the numbers that you're looking at. But active income and passive income, I think are just, they're apples and oranges. They can't really be compared. Yeah, I guess it's just, it's time efficiency. I think another thing that's interesting is, you know, with, with real estate, what's my advantage? Like I go look at these houses, like every Joe Schmo can buy a house, but how many people can actually figure out this internet stuff? Unfortunately, very few people buy rental properties well. Again, that's the distinction between buying a property versus being an investor. There are so many people who anecdotally, they'll say, I had this property and I had a tenant horror story and now I give up. And that's almost the equivalent of saying I threw my money into some random stock and it did really poorly. And so now I give up on the stock market. There are plenty of people, any Joe Schmo can buy a rental. There are a few people who have deeply thought about rentals such that they can do it well. Like I have a very cultivated philosophy around rental property investing. I alluded to this earlier when I talked about how I narrow to one very specific metric, which is cap rate. There are a million different metrics that I could be chasing, right? There are investors who look at cash on cash return. There are investors who look at return on equity. And I have a very well thought out philosophy as to why I rather intentionally do not look at those metrics. So I guess my unique factor is that I have a very specific rental investing philosophy, which I think most people who buy rental properties haven't thought about it as deeply as I have, and that I'm not trying to generally like win at the game of real estate. I've picked one strategy and one niche, and I do only that one thing. So I do only residential rentals in the United States, buy and hold, right? I don't flip, I don't wholesale, I don't buy tax liens, I don't buy commercial properties. I do just one thing, and I do that one thing very, very well. One of my best friends, when I started buying rental properties, she said to me, she was like, there are all of these contractors and all of these real estate agents. What makes you think that you can do better than them? And that statement really bothered me for a long time. 
And it produced a lot of self-doubt in me. I was like, wow, what does make me think I could do better than them? Having been in it for this long, I now know the answer to that, which is contracting is a very specific skill. Being an agent is a very specific skill. And being an investor is also an extremely specific skill. And they're not interchangeable skills. How come you don't do more of an algorithmic approach? For example, like I've used some algorithms on real estate where it's like I have parameters, I can search things, it, it outputs like, oop, this is it. Is that what you're getting your developer to do or have you considered doing that? A filtering tool is fine for that initial first pass of narrowing the universe of properties down to a handful of properties that you're going to look at in more depth. Once you've done that initial first pass and you've narrowed it down to 50 properties that you're going to look at in a little bit more depth, at that point, it requires judgment. I think this all really goes back to judgment. And that is where that unique ability comes in. The unique ability is judgment. That's your competitive advantage. At that point, it's up to you to look at that property and to use the knowledge that you've accumulated. Like if you have narrowed your search criteria to the East Lake neighborhood of Birmingham or to the 45231 zip code of Cincinnati, Ohio, then at that point, you've gotten to know every block in that area. You know what's for sale. You know what's recently sold. An algorithm can filter and sort, but a human can contextualize that. And I think that's where choosing a property becomes more, you start with science until science brings you to a place where you then apply art. And by art, really, I mean judgment. Well, it would just be interesting for you to create an algorithm that like, and maybe I guess Redfin and Zillow and some of these guys kind of already have it, where they can run analysis and then be like, hey, here's, you know, the your criteria. I guess that's, I'm guessing you already have stuff like that. Yeah, that already exists. If you just want to input some criteria, actually in my course, I mentioned software is the future of content. One of the value adds that I give to my students is access to a specific platform in which they can sort properties based on, like, you can input all of your estimates in terms of, like, here's what I estimate my utilities are going to cost. Here's what I think insurance will cost. Here's what I think X and Y and Z. Here's what I think all of my operating expenses will be. Based on those projected operating expenses, this is the cap rate that I'm looking for. And then you can sort properties based on the cap rate that you're looking for or the gross rent multiplier that you're looking for. Or it gives them the capacity to also sort based on cash on cash return. And I explain to them why I don't believe that they should, but they do have the ability to do that. So like one of the things that I do is I have the software and I give my students access to it where they can sort properties based on those parameters like gross rent multiplier, cap rate, cash on cash return, all of those other parameters that they want to sort for. But then once you do that, then you still have eight properties that you're looking at. So how do you determine which of these eight properties, if you only have enough money to buy one, which of these eight are you going to buy? That's where that judgment comes in. Interesting. Because yeah, I guess an algorithm can't just solve that for you. The software is excellent for that initial filtering. That is where content turns to software. Yeah, no, I I hear you on that. Is the money you make on uh, Afford Anything through products or is it through coaching? Or what's the breakdown there? The course is finally finally for the first time in three years about to come out of beta. I've never imagined that it was going to be in here for this long. You know, my title at Afford Anything is like chief content bottleneck. I swear all I do is just bottleneck my own company. Right now, about one third of our income 
has come from ad sales for the podcast. And the other two thirds have come from a combination of course sales as well as a little bit of affiliate links from the blog. The number one is course sales, number two is podcast ad sales, and then number three is affiliate links from the blog. Those are in order our three biggest sources of revenue, with course sales and podcast ads being by far the bigger chunks of that. Next year, I've run the numbers backwards and forwards using like the most conservative projections possible. Next year, I believe that easily, easily our gross revenue will conservatively double, but probably pretty easily triple once the course comes out of beta. Does the course walk through how you buy properties? Well, how I do it is not relevant to how a given student should do it, right? Because a given individual's approach, strategy, risk tolerance is going to be unique to them. So the course walks through how they can do it, not how I do it. What are they doing differently than you, though? Well, if you already own a home and you are taking out a home equity line of credit on your home in order to finance your first rental property, that's a completely different starting point than where I was, where I was a renter who then bought seven rental properties before I ever bought my first primary residence, personal residence. Do you think it's dumb for people to buy primary residences? I have a long blog post, it's like 6,000 words on my website about renting versus buying in the context of a primary residence. In many cases, unless you live in an area where price-to-rent ratios are wildly favorable to ownership, in many cases, renting can be better than buying, depending on how long you live there and depending on the price-to-rent ratios in your area. In high-cost-of-living areas, renting is often a better bet. In lower-cost-of-living areas, owning is often better. But I have a blog post in which I go through how to make those calculations. Because part of what you have to factor for is if there is a cash flow difference between paying a mortgage versus paying rent, what's the opportunity cost of that? Where would you take that additional cash? Would you put it into index funds? What is your assumption for how those would perform? So I go through kind of how to math all of that out. If you read financialsamurai.com, he's one of my favorite, but that's what he says is just like rent in San Francisco and buy in the Midwest. Man, that's so interesting. Why'd you end up buying then? I guess Vegas was affordable. Vegas is a low cost of living area. And also, to be perfectly honest, like my philosophy on homeownership is let your personal be personal and let your investments be your investments. So I don't view my personal residence as an investment. I view it as a consumer expense. No different than me going to a restaurant or buying clothes. I like that. Because I think that's where I'm struggling. Like we're building a personal residence in Austin and it's about a million bucks for the house. And I'm just like, 6000 a month? Or it's, it's end up with property tax, which are crazy in Texas. It's like 7700 a month all in. I'm just like, God, that seems like a lot. Yeah. Let your personal be personal. Let your investments be your investments. And don't conflate the two. If you're going to buy a toy for yourself, buy a toy for yourself. Yeah, because I'm like, I actually started looking, all right, how do I ROI my personal property? I'm like, I can have people do this. I don't know. I could. Uh, anyways, it's like, you're right. You're right. I got to just keep it simple. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also how do you create a lifestyle of work that you look forward to regardless? Like you, hey, I just like doing this property. Like I honestly, property doesn't make me a lot of money. I just like it though. Like I love to have a host of people and I don't even mind the thermostat shit. Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to kind of what you were asking in the beginning. Like when it comes to lifestyle, a lot of people assume that lifestyle means retiring on a beach in Thailand. 
to me, lifestyle meant working. It just meant doing work that I enjoy. Like that's my ideal lifestyle is doing work that I enjoy without worrying about cash flow volatility within that work. That's nice to have that foundation to do other things. I feel like that way about my relationship. Like gives me a foundation to feel confident to do other stuff. All right, Paula, you're the best. Awesome. That's a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as I did. If you did, go check out Paula at affordanything.com. Next, tell a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go buy some houses together. Finally, let me know what you think of this episode by leaving a review on iTunes or by tweeting me at Noah Kagan. I might feature your beautiful face in my next episode. Outro plug. One, if you're interested in when I launch my book, Things That Rich People Won't Tell You, send me an email to richpeople at okdork.com with the subject line, I want it. I'll notify you when my book comes out. Number two, if you like camping, skiing, or just being secretive and having a private network for your phones when you're traveling, go check out gotenna.com. Final plug, final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com is always making for these podcasts sound so fresh and so clean on your eardrums. And thanks to David Kelly and Brandon Wells of the Dork Team. What's your favorite phone? Android or iPhone? 